You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr., engaging the issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. My guest this week is Elaine Miller Karras. She's the co-founder of Trauma Resource Institute. I'm honored to call her my friend and engage in this conversation with her. She brought such wisdom and depth, helping us understand trauma in my documentary short film, Open Wounds. She's the woman who was called when there are traumatic events that impact communities around the world to help them cultivate the skills to respond well and move towards healing. Not only that, she does it with strength and gentleness of her maternal instincts. And I trust that you'll get that vibe while listening to this episode. We have with us today Elaine Miller Karras, a, a good friend of mine. I've known her for a few years now, a couple of years now. Um, I've been learning from her. She is just an amazing, amazing teacher. Um, she exudes compassion. And um, I, I really wanted her to be on here to teach us. I want you to learn from her. Uh, as she just told me before we came on, um, she said, I live the questions that you shared, you sent me that you were going to ask. Um, and that's, and I think that is, that is so true. It's not a, a head thing, a cerebral thing. She lives this and she's passionate about it. And there's healing that comes from her, I would say, ministry or her organization or the work that she does. Elaine, welcome to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr. Thank you for coming. I'm so honored and, and, and excited for you to be here and, and share with us. Well, thank you, Phil. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me to come. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want people to get an idea of who you are. I want them to know who you are. Um, so can you, how did you, we're going to talk about trauma and, and resiliency today. Um, how did you, what led you to that? Like what, what, what got you to a place where you began to not just study trauma, but, but begin to teach it and become passionate about it. Um, and also, where are you from? T tell us about you. We want to know everything about you in, in, okay, in five I'll minutes. say as much as I can. Well, <laughs> well, first of all, I grew up in the Bay Area, and my um, mother and grandmother, and I think this is an important part of my story, they immigrated to the United States from El Salvador. So they came to this country not speaking English, and my mom came during World War II, and she worked, um, I think she was called to work in the shipyards, but my mom was not a shipyard kind of person. So I think within a few weeks or months after arrival, as the, the family history goes, she got a job pouring coffee at the St. Francis Hotel. And the reason why my name is Elaine is because the, the, the waitress that helped her learn English was named Elaine oh, and wow. was one of her you know, very dear friends of her life. But my, my dad was from Montana. And they actually shared like a, an apartment, I guess it was called Flats at the time, where there mm -hmm. wasn't enough housing in San Francisco after the war. And my dad had been in the Navy and was discharged and was living in a flat and they shared a kitchen. So my mom and dad obviously fell in love and that they had um, three children. And so I grew up in the Bay Area. And part of growing up in the Bay Area was also um, deciding to become a social worker. So I got my master's at San Jose State. I also got my undergraduate there as well. And I started working, um, and I really was really dedicated to working in the field of maternal child health. But I also, because of my background, I really wanted to reach 
um, the Latina community. I guess we call it Latinx now um, because I was um, knowing how difficult it had been for my mom and also the different life experiences I had as a child where people would talk to me instead of her because she had a very heavy accent. Mm -hmm. And she, my mother was really good. It's like saying, talk to me, I'm the adult. Um, even though I know it was hard for people to understand her, but I saw kind of the microaggressions that happened. Yep. And I wanted to do whatever I could um, to welcome people as they came, I guess, into the country. And also to help women when they were, and families, when they were going into that very difficult transition of being parents and um, coming Oops, coming into their into the into the United States for the first time. Many of the people I worked with were immigrants. But then I really um, um, we moved to from Northern California to Southern California, and I started working at a, a very large county hospital in um, Southern California called Arrowhead Regional Medical Center. And I was the Associate Director of Behavioral Sciences for the Family Medicine Program, which meant I taught young doctors and medical students about all the behavioral sciences. And part of my job was to co-attend with the medical faculty in our primary care clinics. And this was in an area of California that really had high poverty and violence and a lot of the, the um, the windstorms and, and tragedies of systems that, you know, kind of are built to oppress were in this part of the world. And so when people would come in, they'd come in with stomach aches or headaches. And, and part of my job was to um, remind the, the residents and the, the new doctors who were learning, right, that there was more than there was a mind body connection. So if somebody came in and they, they were having stomach problems and they couldn't sleep, it could be because of the traumas that were happening in their life. Mm. And I got very interested in the best way to teach these doctors about the, um, the neuroscience of trauma. And this was a time really in the kind of in the, in the 90s um, and in the 2000s where a lot of information was being shared about how the body keeps the score, Bessel van der Kolk's work, and the body bears the burden um, that trauma happens, not just to our emotions, but it happens to our body. And that really opened up a whole new, ex, you know, area of study. And then I became very intrigued about how could we make very simple biological skills accessible to everyone? And how could we maybe teach others to teach wellness skills about the biology of trauma, but also very importantly, the biology of well-being. Some people call it the biology of resilience. And how could we make them available to everyone? And it also happened at the same time that I was asked to visit some, like I was invited to go to Haiti, for example, where there was one psychologist for 60,000 people. Oh, but there's so much wisdom in the central plateau of Haiti. I met so many wizened leaders. And, I, and so the, the ideas started to, to emerge what if you were to teach natural leaders of communities wellness skills in order to teach others? And that has really been, I think, my life's mission. And what really has changed um, the trajectory of my life is as a licensed mental health professional myself, I had a trauma practice for many years um, in Southern California. I no longer see, see clients, but really what captured my heart was how could we bring this for people who didn't have the same accessibility or the same advantage that I certainly had 
of being able to access resources or in resources of mental health providers if I needed that kind of help or to even go to a doctor if I needed that help. And we know that that I think the COVID epidemic has really shown us in the United States and the world, the disparities in how healthcare is delivered to people of color, to people who have been marginalized by, you know, many structures that are in existence long before you and I feel were ever born. And I'm a lot older than yeah. you are. Yeah. So, <laughs> are you? Know, you? <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Um, I'm sure I could be your mom. So, um, <laughs> but in any event, those kinds of things, I just, I just got heated up about it because what it was in the beginning, it was about kind of teaching the residents and having the ideas for the individual healing of a person and a family. And then of course, the larger community. And as we, as um, myself and a couple of friends had the idea of creating the Trauma Resource Institute, which has been in existence now since 2006, 2005, actually, I am very happy to report it has been thriving. And we have been really taking this message not only to many places within the United States, but to the world. And because of the partnerships that we have with, for example, Emory University um, and a program that was inspired by the Dalai Lama, I can say we're in 145 countries, but we have another partnership mm. with um, Compassion Integrity Training, and they've been um, um, brought to bring their model forward by um the Mahatma Gandhi Institute. And so it now is, and both of those programs are offered for free that anyone can sign up and they can take. But I think the, the core, you know, kind of why I'm so passionate about what we're doing is that you and I may have different color skin, Phil. I know that I know you, so I know we have a common humanity, but we all, we both have a nervous system that reacts in the same way that when we have trauma and something happens to us, that our body reacts in a, in a, in a very similar way. And I've seen that whether, um, I've seen it all over the world. I've seen it in Nepal. I've seen it in parts of Africa. I've seen it in Mexico. I've seen it in many parts of the United States. So I know that we have a common humanity and as much as I do believe that we need to pay attention and acknowledge our differences and our historical traumas, I also wanna be very present to what else is true about how do we come together. And it's not always easy. I've been in conversations where I know that I have left the best parts of myself and been upset. Um, and yet I know that there's ways that we can ask for forgiveness, that we can come forward and say, okay, I made a, made a misstep. I don't know everything I need to know. And how can we do it differently? Um, we all sometimes show up, maybe not at the best parts of ourselves, I can yeah. say, yeah. but how do we cultivate that? So more times than not, we can say, okay, I'm here. I'm ready for the dialogue as hard as, as it may be. And there may be times I want to run away, but I come back to say, I'm going to step in here because I know that if I'm not part of creating ideas and solutions to bring us together, that we all have to be a part of it. Every skin color, every religion, every culture, we are human beings and we have to figure out how do we do this together with love and compassion and empathy. Absolutely. And I think that's what I've learned from my religious upbringing um, um, of Christianity and learning about um, 
Buddhism and Hinduism and other um, other religions that I have been very fortunate that I've been invited into countries where people have shared their faith and their healing for me, knowing that we have maybe different pathways up the same mountain, but it's the same mountain mm. of that you know universal presence in the world that I like to call God, yeah. that has been manifested in different forms around the world. Yeah. Man, you said <laughs> so. I was taking trying to catch up, keep up and take notes. Um, I wanted to go back to something really, really quick before moving on to this, uh, a next thought that I had. But you mentioned the micro, you saw the microaggressions that your mom um, experienced. Um, and, and then you, obviously it, it inspired you to do the work that you do. Yes. How did you, how did that treatment or experience for her, do you think, how did it manifest in her life, like, was she was she she was a tough person, and I okay. think she had had a lot of trauma, not only from having come here, but from what she experienced in El Salvador. I think mm -hmm. she came here to kind of rid herself of the ghosts of the past and that footprint that was put on her, mm -hmm. and that when she got here, you know, also you know, kind of um, a journey of leaving a trauma to also experiencing different things. And she was a fighter, my mom. Mm -hmm. And, but I think that those microaggressions, she lived with a lot of anger and rage. And I think one of the things I remember, and I think this is important, is that oftentimes, uh, because her accent was so thick, people would ask her where she was from. Mm -hmm. And it's not that she wasn't proud of being from El Salvador. But, and I didn't realize it until a long time later why she had such a strong reaction. And she would get angry at people. Don't you ask me where I'm from. I'm from America. <laughs> she, I yeah, have, I, yeah. cause she really did love, and she had, and I loved, I loved the way I loved her accent. You know, I, I, so I always try to do it a little bit because it reminds me of her and I think of her. Um, but she, um, she had quite a lot of anger, but for me as a little girl, I was always so, I go, oh, I hope no one asks her because she's going to get mad at them. And I didn't realize till later why that was so hard for her because it wasn't seeing her as the American that she was now because they were seeing her past and not her present. Mm. And I didn't realize that till really not too long ago. I mean, Phil, I have to say. Yeah. Um, so I have, I have actually more compassion for her. I wish I could have a conversation with her about it. Yeah. Because all I can say is those microaggressions that happened towards her happened to me in a different way. Yeah. If that makes sense. It makes sense. It, you know, it makes me think of something in Resma, Resma's book, Resma Menachem, My Grandmother's Hands, where he talks about um, trauma retention and it could be passed on generation to generation, but even within a person, at some time, at some point, it begins to look like personality. Yes. This is just who they are yeah. and not taking consideration. It is a manifestation or expression of the trauma that they may be carrying. And we don't take in that in consideration. No. And I think if we look at that, I think this whole trajectory for me in terms of my life's journey, and you and I've talked about this before, you've been to my home, you've seen the pictures of my family, um, but colonialism yes. had a heavy imprint on my family. And mm. I didn't really realize it until I started thinking about leaving that trauma from the past because my great grandmother was an indigenous person. You know, I did my DNA of 11% um, and she was Mayan, right? Mm. But I realized that a lot of my mom's journey was discounting 
that she had any indigenous blood because of the degree of prejudice in El Salvador of people that were mixed. So, I mean, I I think it's really interesting to me when I think about it, because that I have this picture, you've seen it of my family, and there's this little lady that was my great-grandmother who's clearly a Native person, and my mother would tell me she was Irish. And so when you think about that, how could that little... De- de- definitely person who looks like an indigenous person be Irish, right? Yeah. But I think there was such a, a heavy mark of prejudice that was difficult for her to bear, honestly. Yeah. You know, I, that reminds me, I, I talk about, I often talk about the, the violence of assimilation, and we talk about colonialism. Right. But, but that's a part of this, this project of racism, um, white supremacy globally, historically, is assimilation. Um, to erase the erasure of backgrounds that are non-white. Exactly. For the purpose, and we do it for the purpose, historically we've done it, people of color, for the purpose of surviving and having opportunities to thrive. Ignoring the trauma that comes with that very practice. And see, I think that was my mom. I think, but I think she didn't have any insight about it. I think my growing understanding of it now going, Oh, this makes so much sense. Yes. Of why she would say the kinds of things and why, how you presented yourself, the clothes that you wore, how, you know, I re- she was very proper about this is very important so that people know who you are. Yeah. And I, and sometimes the point of it being, oh my gosh, mom, really. Um, but to the point of it, I, I get that now because that was about her survival. Yeah. When yeah. she was there and how she brought that forward here. Yeah. You know, I, I've been thinking a lot in the last few years, probably since CRIM, <laughs> to be honest with you, since my CRIM training. And I want to talk a little bit about that later. But we, we, we all, in various degrees, are traumatized people. This, this nation is made up of traumatized people from, you know, even from Europe, you know, Puritans, people coming over, we're, we're traumatized. Yes. And today... That, that word trauma has become almost a catchphrase with the masses yeah. now. Like everything is trauma. And I don't believe everything is trauma. But can you help us understand what trauma is? And you may have already done that, but this is... Well, I think of, it's a great question. I think it's something that um, you've taken our community resiliency model training, and we describe it in many ways. And, mm-hmm. you know, a simple way of saying it's too much too fast. Too much too fast. Too little for too long or too much for too long. And that could be, you know, when you think about too much too fast, earthquakes, sexual assault, mm-hmm. uh, car accidents. If you think, you know, too little for too long, child neglect, too much for too long, racism, poverty, COVID-19, um, we can keep adding to those buckets. And, you know, many of us have different lived experience that we could put different lived experience into those buckets. But I think the other thing that is really, and you know, there's also, there's definitions. I'm a, I'm a licensed, you know, therapist. So we have a big fancy book called the DSM-5 where there's clinical diagnoses. That's not really my favorite in the way that I explain trauma to people. Okay. But I think there is an emerging body of evidence. And this really comes from, I think that the adverse childhood experiences study has helped us with that. And that's um, the, the stress spectrum. And I think, I like to talk about it in terms of that because it talks about the physiological aspects of trauma. And that is we have 
three different, like if we look at it as on a spectrum, we have positive stress, we have tolerable stress, stress, and we have toxic stress. So, you know, um, positive stress may be, oh, getting the energy up for you to do one of your races. I was just thinking last like, yesterday, thinking that? La- night before last, last night yes. was positive stress because I right. could not sleep. <laughs> yes. And then, so you've got that positive stress and then you use that energy to run your race. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, it's like, ah, that experience of, you know, it's a very, one. I've run a marathon before a long time ago, but that experience <laughs> is really a fabulous experience, right? And you're yes. smiling as you're looking at me and yes. nodding your head. So you know that. So that's positive stress, right? Yes. We come back into balance very soon. Mm-hmm. And then there's tolerable stress. And that may be something like, let's say a breakup of, um, let's say you're dating someone and you break up with someone and, um, and you're upset about it. And your friends surround you and you're, they say, you're going to get through this, Phil, it's going to be okay. And then maybe you have some prayerful moments of getting guidance from your higher power and you find yourself within a period of time coming back into balance. It was hard, but yet you were able to do it with support and with calling in the resources of your life. But then there's toxic stress Mm. and toxic stress is the kind of things that we're talking about of too much too fast or too little for too long that changes our bodies, our physical experience. And there's, um, there's something called aleostosis. Like when we come back into like our equilibrium, back into that, that's that balance where we feel that there is a physical sensation that goes along with our way of thinking of feeling better. But when we're in toxic stress, it's like we have the, um, foot on the accelerator of our car, our bodies, and our accelerator is down to the floor, practically going through the floor, and it never comes back up again. Mm. And this can happen to many of us because let's say, if we lived in a family where there was family violence, we never knew when we were going to get it. So after a while, our nervous system kinds of resets. So we're in hypervigilant mode all the time. But what if you live in family violence and there's alcoholism as well. My dad was an alcoholic. Of my dad, he did get into recovery, but that wasn't easy when he was actively drinking, right? Yeah, yeah. And so that affects the nervous system of a child. And then let's say you're dealing with, I just talked about the, you know, the microaggressions that happened with my mom and what you would have experienced as a black child and a black man and the racism that we know that exists within our country. Mm-hmm. And so that all those things that we live with within our bodies kind of stack up and they can cause that degree of toxic stress where we're just always on edge. So then how do we get ourselves? Oh, and if you're on in that on edge and that hyper, we call it hyper aroused state, then we can crash down into a hypo arise state, which is like mm. feeling numb and disconnected and depressed. We can go from anger and rage to the other, not even feeling there's a spot we can stop into that is about our well-being. Yes. And so that I think is an important thing that this is toxic stress to the body. And it's kind of like we're putting poison in our body by not letting that, that putting the brake on or lifting our foot off the accelerator, but we may not know how to do that. So if we just say, oh, well, stop feeling upset about something. Well, it just is, right? Yeah. Yeah. If someone treats you in, in a way that is disrespectful because of the color of your skin, you can't help that person doing that. But you certainly have a reaction, which you have the right to have, but then how do you live there, right? Mm -hmm. Or can you get back into a state, I want to put that balance back into me because I don't want to carry that 
aggression on my back for the rest of my life. Exactly. Right? So, I mean, that's, I think, what we're called to do and what we can do, but we don't know how. And I think, you know, many times when I talk to people and I ask them a very important question about what's helping you, what helps you in your life with your lived experiences of suffering, I think you know what the answer to many of that is, is a person's faith. Yes. And, you know, their faith can get them through many things that they feel that there is a higher power that's also with them. Mm-hmm. Often it's their relationships, it's their family, it's yeah. those people that surround them when they're suffering. And I think those are the kinds of things that we can cultivate and rem- and remind ourselves of that. And so when we're reminded of that, we can say, oh, yeah, that's right. And when that happens, there's a momentary pause. And that momentary pause may be lifting that foot off the accelerator. And we call in crim, right? Remembering what else yeah. is true about one's life, right? Yes, yes. So, you know, for me, I can say, oh, yeah, it was tough at times with my dad when he was drinking. But I remember when I didn't have a, dr- a date to the junior prom. And he one day he came home from work. He was an engineer with the railroad. He drove uh, trains. And he got all dressed up, took a shower and said, honey, we're going out, we're going out to dinner. And he took me to this restaurant in uh, the San Jose area that was called the Brave Bull. It was at a bowling alley. And he <laughs> took me out to dinner. And, you know, we had a wonderful dinner that day. And I'll never forget that about him that, you know, he knew that I was upset and um, about not having a date. So he was my date. And, and yet there were times that, you know, we suffered because of his drinking. Yeah. Um, so I kind of have tears in my eyes when I'm thinking about that because I'm choosing to remember those times with him, yes. knowing the others exist, not forgetting the suffering because I've choose, chosen not to be a drinker in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has been something that's helped me with my life that I also chose not to go down that pathway. Yeah. So my kids never had to grow up with someone coming home drunk and having that experience of fear of not knowing what was going to happen in the household. So, but I, I, but I remember the goodness in him and how I also love him and love him to this day, even though he passed many years ago now. What you said hit home with me because in my transition from the, the hate, excuse me, the hate and anger with my father, I had to try to find something good to remember. Right. And initially I couldn't. It was so hard initially. Then over time, so there, I think there was some, something that was blocking that in terms of my memory because over time, they began to come. And then since our relationship began to heal, and we're in a great place today, we laugh about things from the past now that I had totally forgotten about, comments that were made. You remember that time when we saw da-da-da-da-da and we both just crack up laughing? Well. Ten years ago, eight years ago, I couldn't even remember those things, right? But one of the things that helped me was as I, if I could just, I'll say this. My grandmother, I was home alone. My wife had gone out of town. My ex-wife at the time had gone out of town. I was taking a shower, and I was going to preach a message on the Ten Commandments. Well, there's a verse that says, honor your father and your mother. And as clear as day, voice, I attribute to the Holy Spirit, I attribute to God. You can't preach this passage 
because you don't honor your father. And I began to cry. In that moment, I'm having this vision or daydream. Some might say daydream, but I I call it a vision of my my father having passed away. And my grandmother is in tears and we're making all the arrangements. And she says to me, can you eulogize your father? Can you say something good about him? And it was hard for me to say in in that moment, it was hard for me to say yes to my grandmother. Today, it's a different story. But it's just an example of what you were just sharing about thinking about the memory of that good to help me get get out of that place and carrying that toxicity continuing to carry yeah, that. Yeah, and I think and I think what's important about what you just said for both of us, it's a journey. Yeah. And if some of your listeners are saying, Oh, I'm not there yet. <laughs> yeah. I don't feel that yet. But it may be a yet. It may be part of the journey that you can find that um that pathway. Cause I think that there is something about knowing that and also with my mom, because she was she was more difficult than my dad. She was harsher than he was. Um, and I realize now why she was. Mm-hmm. But I think there's, you know, we talk about forgiveness. And there was a forgiveness of, for them, but there was also a forgiveness in myself, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That I had to forgive myself for not being what I thought I should be to them. Oh. And that was a helpful thing for me. And there's still regrets. Um, it was so funny. I was talking to my husband about this this morning. I didn't know we were going to talk about this. My dad died of lung cancer. He was a smoker. And, uh, but it was, he died a year after his finding the AA program. And he was such a holy man when he died. I mean, it was such a great memory of him that I know that his last year of life, I mean, there were so many people from AA at his funeral that it was, it was, it brought all of us to tears because his life had changed in that year time because finally he knew how good he was. Mm. But I don't think he knew that until he really found AA. Because I think of the traumas of his life, which he had plenty as well. But I'm, but I was thinking about, um, about him, and this is the regret. Um, one time when he was, he probably lived maybe a month after this. He asked, he loved to play pinochle, and he asked me, he goes, "Honey, will you want to play pinochle?" And I said, "Oh, Dad, I got to get the kids to bed, and I don't have time to do that today." Well, there was never another time to play pinochle with him, and I do regret that. So I guess what I want to say, too, that if there's a person that's still with you on the planet, and if there's a way that you can find some way to move aside some of the suffering that's happened in that relationship, and just like you're saying with your dad, he's still here, that you can have those moments. I don't have those anymore with my dad. Mm. Um, I just going to encourage you to think about it because there's such healing in I wish I would have had that last pinochle game. Yep. I think yep. I could sit back and be and smile a little bit about that, but I do regret that. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I want a couple of things. This is this is so good. This is so good. You talk about how trauma affects the body, right? And you talk about positive stress, tolerable stress, toxic stress. And in my film, which you were in, we talk. We, we mention epigenetics and how the stress or the trauma is said to be able to be passed on through the birthing process. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and so, you know, there's there's a number of researchers. One is named Dr. Rachel Yehuda, um, and she's one of the you know leading experts about trauma. And the research that she's done has been um, on um, children of the Holocaust. 
and seeing that there can't, there may be, as I say maybe, because the research is still being done. So it's it's still in the theoretical stage uh, stage work, but I think we can say that there's really good evidence to say that there's beginning research to see that that the, there may be uh, changes in the genetic expression from the trauma of our past that can be passed down through our parents. Mm-hmm. And so with that, there may actually be changes that happen in the womb when we're, when we're just little embryos yeah. because of the trauma of our parents that can get passed on to us. And so that is a, um, a study that neuroscientists are now embarking upon. But I think if we just even talk about it anecdotally, about just even the conversations you and I have both talked about, your family and my family, and how their lived experience got passed on to us environmentally. Yes. And so if it's passed on environmentally, is there a physiological footprint that gets left behind? Yes. And I think that's what we're looking at now. And we, you think about the mind-body connection, that if we're in states of distress and that accelerator is on uh, down to the floor and you have cortisol pumping into your system, that we know that that kind of experience for long, long periods of time can change our immune system mm-hmm. and turn on perhaps genetic um, markers that are dormant that could cause us to develop things, different kinds of illnesses mm-hmm. that um, because we're now immunocompromised. So it does make sense that that could also happen in this whole field of epigenetics, doesn't it? Yes. You know, and I think that's what I can say that I think we know clearly from the adverse child experiences study that if you have had a lot of trauma in your life and if you've had four or more adverse child experiences that you're at greater risk for for diabetes, diabetes, cardiac disease, I mean, a whole plethora of different kinds of conditions. But adversity is not destiny. You've heard me say that before. You can change your nervous system now. You can start cultivating your well-being and paying attention to um, your well-being and actually grow it. Because as much as we're designed for survival and we're designed actually to have a stress response, because sometimes we may need that to get away from threat, Mm -hmm. we're also designed to heal. And just think about, you know, maybe the last time you had a cut, you might have put a bandage on it, but in a, in a period of time, um, it healed. The skin grew over and you might not even ever see a mark of it again, but maybe there's a scar. And so our traumas do leave scars, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that they can't heal. Yes. And that's what I want. I would always want to give the message of, because I think sometimes people who've had a lot of trauma, if they read about, let's say, the neurobiology of how trauma affects the growing brain, they go, oh, no, that happened to me. Does that mean I'll never have peace or calm inside of me? And I'm here to say, of course you can. That you can, because we know there's something called neuroplasticity, that the brain can change, that you can lay down new, what we call neuronal pathways. Neurons are brain cells. Mm -hmm. And as you cultivate your well-being and pay attention, to sensations of well-being Mm -hmm. that actually helps you have clear thinking, you have more availability of your compassionate nature, not only for yourself and for others. And we have seen that over and over again as we have brought the wellness skills of the community resiliency model 
and the trauma resiliency model to our world community. And now we have, oh my gosh, I'm so excited, Phil. We have a lot of randomized controlled trials now um, mm. that are demonstrating that yes, that you know, a group of nurses who had, you know, almost a third of them met the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder after learning the wellness skills of CRIM reported an 80% improvement in well-being after a year. So why did that happen? Once they learned the skills in only a three-hour training, they continued to practice them in their activities of daily living. And because the skills are so simple, um, they can even be you know, taught to a child and a, another child could teach another child. You know, when we talk about, as your you know, guests are listening right now, you know, what are the things that have helped you in your life? Who are the people who've helped you in your life? And maybe some of you are thinking, I don't know if anything's helped me in my life. Well, you can even imagine what would help look like if you could imagine what that would be like. Um, you may find that something. Oh, well, yes, that would be. I can imagine that. You know, many people have superheroes as their imagined resources, right? And if we think about the Black Panther or we think about Wonder Woman, I mean, maybe we think, oh, but those are such, they, they are they are mythical characters, but where does where do our myths come from? They come from the creation of human beings. And also I think maybe all of us at times could have mythical characteristics. You know, the time we had courage and spoke up, the time mm -hmm. that we did something kind towards someone that no one knew about. Those kinds of things are within our nature. And we can imagine what those might be like, even if we haven't had that experience. Yes, yes. You, you, you're, everyone who's listening, this, she's talking a little bit about CRIM. You've heard us mention CRIM, Community Resiliency Model. And that's what I've been um, trained and certified in as well. Um, I know resiliency, you've been intentional about not just talking about, but including that in the conversation. And these skills are to help towards that end of fostering resiliency or reminding people of the resiliency that's built into us. You know, um, how do you define resiliency for us? And why is it important to, for that, uh, to you, that we make sure it's central to the oh, conversation? Yeah, it trauma? really is important right now because um, I remember a number of years ago, I was in Northern Ireland and um, we were about to start our first community resiliency model teacher training in Northern Ireland. And one of the participants who were having dinner with God, I just want you to know, Elaine, in my part of Belfast, there's a big billboard that says, if anyone calls you resilient, more or less run the other way, because that's the government trying to not acknowledge the suffering that have happened in our community and also not give us the services that we, um, that we need in order to create more thriving communities within our society who's been oppressed. And, I'm, and I said, oh my, I go, I, I'm gonna have to really think about this one because here I'm about to start a training about community resiliency and, <laughs> and, and if people think that way. And you know, it's also was an opening for me because they're not the only ones. Many people in the United States right now and also many people of color um, have shared with me that resiliency is a dirty word. It's, it's like, it's a weapon. And someone said to me, actually, today I did a presentation at Boston College, and one of the young men of color said, well, he goes, you know, we can be resilient, but not okay. And I thought that was a very powerful statement that he said. Yeah. Um, 
And so when I talk about resilient, I first, we have to talk about what the definition is because sometimes resilient is, oh, my ability to, to bounce back. That's not my favorite definition of resilience. Yeah. Yeah. So when I talk about resilience, I am talking about the capacity of all of us to cultivate our well-being, even if we're living through the darkest of times. And what does that cultivation of well-being look like? Well, first of all, cultivating well-being is not denying that we have suffered. It's mm. acknowledging the suffering, even leaning into the suffering and knowing that's happened. That's that lived experience of historical trauma, for example. Um, but it's also saying, if I lean in, I could also lean into something else. So what is true? Oh my gosh, I have so many ideas when I am coming in as my better part of myself about ideas to make my community stronger and to deal with some of the oppressive structures that I did not create, but that I am living with, right? That is, mm -hmm. to me, that's about a, a resilient community that because they're cultivating their well-being, they're not stuck in what can be a diatribe of what becomes like the negativity focus mm -hmm. of everything that's wrong and not also bringing out what's right. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a real danger if we do that um, about creating new systems that could be... Um, absolute change makers for our society right now. But I think resilient all is also about um, having a hopeful and optimistic perspective. I think it's also about hope and optimism. And optimism sometimes is not easy to find if we're living in a lot of oppression and suffering. But I have to say what I've seen across the world, and I've gone into great areas of suffering, that when we start paying attention and we're empowered by our own ability to um, experience what I believe is already within us, which is that well-being and that capacity to cultivate our well-being, um, then we can sense that for ourselves and we can use skills for ourselves that are not dependent on systems that have been there to oppress. It's about our design and I know that, you know, maybe with in your ministerial background, that is, um, that's a God-given gift that we can do that. And when we can touch into that, then I think there's possibilities of creating a, be a better present and a future. Um, but I also think that when we create, um, when we think about resiliency, it's embodied well-being. Embodied mm -hmm. well-being. But in order to have embodied well-being, it also means we also need to know that there's also embodied distress. Yep. But if we live in that embodied distress, I think that's when we get derailed in our lives, that we can then get bumped into what we call the high zone where we are just rageful at everyone, or we can get knocked into the low zone where we're disconnected from ourselves. Well, both states, high zone and low zone states are both disconnections from self. Um, and not showing up in ways where we can try to cultivate um, compassion and empathy. But see, to me, that's another component of resilience. Mm. Are, are we showing up with compassion, empathy, and advocacy? So because we're resilient, that means we can be an advocate for ourselves, for our family, and our community. So you can see that my, <laughs> even since we first met, my... Um, thinking about resiliency is much more multifaceted mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because what I didn't want to do 
um, was I didn't want to throw away the word yeah. because any word can be weaponized. Yes. And I did have a very prominent African-American person tell me, um, and I, I have to say, I did get in a heated discussion with her. I, I regret. Um, she said, well, she says, you, you just don't know because you're white, but we black folk, we know that resiliency, we don't like it. We don't tell you because you won't understand. And that could be true. Mm-hmm. But I guess I was a bit offended about the way she said it, yeah, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I know that it didn't come out. It didn't come out in a way. She was trying to help me understand. But I also learned from that conversation that I can get too bound up with the word because I'm attached to that word. And mm-hmm. I do think that Jesus and the, the Buddha both said, be careful about being too attached, right? Mm-hmm. Because if I get so attached to a word that I can't hear that discussion, then that's not going to serve what I believe is my higher purpose that I do believe is God-driven was to bring healing ideas to the world. Mm, to bring healing ideas to the world. You know, I, I'm, I have a different perspective than she might when it comes to resiliency. I actually highlight the resiliency ah. um, in, in my community because it doesn't dismiss the suffering. It is because of the suffering. My grandmother, and we talked about her before, her suffering, her trauma that she carried with her to her death, I can't see that without seeing her resiliency now. She's one of the strongest women. Now, I don't know if she knew how to, in healthy ways, uh, address the trauma. I think she just knew how to carry it. But that woman is resilient. She, she knew how to, um, to cultivate that resiliency in us. Um, she, she didn't allow the trauma to cripple her. What she did with her life in spite of, right? So... For me, I actually, I have no problem using the word resilient because it, it speaks to that, that strength of well-being, of being able to, even if I don't have healthy ways to flourish, I'm still carrying some things, I at least have the strength and the reser- resiliency to, 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 to stand, to and you know, when, when you say that too, and, and if you all could see him, he's like making a, a very <laughs> wonderful movement and gesture is that, but you know, if I can say this, Phil, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I see that in you. Thank you. She gave that to you, didn't she? she oh, did. absolutely. Absolutely. So, and you're about to bring me I to had, tears. Yeah. Well, and I kind of feel tears in my eyes right now and I felt a little chill, but I guess that's why I think this conversations between us like this are important. Because I, I do think acknowledging that it can be weaponized, but also it's still a good word to me if yeah. we define it. And when you define and you, you know, I feel like I know your grandma from the ways that you talked about her so lovingly in many conversations about her. Um, and she's now not only in your heart, but she's in mine. And now <laughs> all these others are hearing about her strength and how she, she lives. So like, can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. You know, like that young man that posed that question to me today. So we could say she was resilient, but do you think she was okay too? She was resilient and okay? Um, I don't think she was okay. All right. Um, Because she still carried that. Like, remember, I I asked her the question about my grandfather and she couldn't even talk about it. Right. So she wasn't okay, but she was resilient. And so, see, I think we probably need to talk about that more. That you can maybe not be okay, and I guess okay too, 
that would be the definition for the person. Mm-hmm. You, do you think she would have said she was okay? She would have said she, she was okay. okay. Yeah. But then we can say in our knowledge of what trauma does to the body and that her silence, I mean, what I always have, what I, I don't know, again, please correct me, but it would have been wonderful if you could have had a conversation with her and embraced her in your love about it was okay to tell you. I, I had something similar because she told me the second time. Yes. But I had those moments where before she passed, when she came to visit here in California, it was a gift to me. Yeah. The Lord gave me a gift. And she said, I haven't been able to sleep in years. <sighs> I lay, I said, Grandma, can I pray for you? I laid hands on her and I prayed over my grandmother. The next morning she woke up with this smile. She said, I haven't slept that like that in years. Oh, Phil. So I don't know if that's where you were going with it, but I don't know, I've but had... that's exactly. Oh my gosh. But yeah. so so I you know, again, so maybe in that moment she was okay. But I get, you know, how you I don't know, I guess, and here we're talking about semantics. And I do think mm-hmm. we have to be careful mm-hmm. because what I would never want to do, and I hope you know this about me, I would never want to convey something simply when mm-hmm. there's been so much suffering mm-hmm. or to use a word as a weapon, but to use it as something that provides healing and the encouragement to be curious mm-hmm. about your ability to pour that really the, well, to me, that was the well of God into her as mm-hmm. you prayed with her mm-hmm. that could restore her sleep, right? That, that to me, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing with the community resiliency model. Yes. And, and those are powerful ways to help um, our families, ourselves. And, and I think we all have the capacity to do that as, as much as some of you may be sitting there and maybe being in despair, that, that you can, that really there are ways to move out of the despair. Absolutely. Absolutely. Last question. I know you got to go. Um, I want to speak to what's happened in this past year and just give you a chance to, to speak life, those words of healing to not just the African-American community for sure, because of the George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, that uh, Ahmaud Arbery, um, the Asian community with the anti-Asian violence that we witnessed through those videos, um, those affected by the insurrection, that grieved me watching that and seeing, okay, what's going on? right now. That grieved me. Um, All that's been happening over the last year, can you speak life, words of healing to us as we're in the midst of COVID still? I think, you know, honestly, it's been hard for me too. And some of my, um, some of my values that I thought were held true, I found weren't held as true by some Americans as much as I thought. I think part of the, the hardship for me has been the polarization of people who I love and care about having ideas that I'm actually appalled by. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to, it's been hard for me sometimes to, um, to still embrace them, which I do, knowing that they have sometimes um, views that are so antithetical to everything I believe. Yes. So I think that what I can say is that I use the skills of the model, <laughs> of the community resiliency model. I try to remember what else is true. 
Um, I spend time with a little girl with my granddaughter and I love seeing her and she doesn't know about all those, the sufferings of the world. And when I see her innocence, it also is all the promise of what can be. Mm. So that's one thing. But I think the other thing I'm grateful for, even, even though it still remains to be a hard lesson and it's still unfolding is I believe that as much as I've been, you know, a proponent of the civil rights movement, in my life, I had the honor to meet um, Andrew Young. I've met some of the leaders. I'm, I'm very good friends with Medgar Evers' daughter. I really feel I've had a lot of advantage of knowing people that have been involved in the movement. I don't think, I, I think that this year, I feel like a curtain's been opened, that more has become known to me that wasn't known to me. Hmm. Like I didn't know about the Black Wall Street I'd never mm -hmm. learned that. Why didn't mm -hmm. I know that? Mm -hmm. um, it was never taught. No one, you know, I'm, I think you know what I'm saying with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I kind of get a chill when I think about it. So I'm grateful that I know more now than I did before. But it also has um, given me greater suffering, if that makes sense, about mm -hmm. saying, well, what more do I need to know in order to continue what I believe is my path of healing? So I guess I would say continue to be curious about the truth and about the truthful history, not the history that has been literally whitewashed. And I think not only of the, what has happened to, um, to, to African-Americans, but also to the indigenous population of America yes, yes. Who, who have experienced a genocide that has not been acknowledged. We acknowledge the genocide and the Holocaust in Germany yes. and in Europe but we don't acknowledge that Holocaust. Yes. So I think that part of that is embracing the truth of our history and learning how to be part of constructing avenues where that truth could be, can be told. Yes. And so I, I've, I'm hoping that I will continue to work with the Medgar Evers Institute. They have some ideas of bringing a living history of the civil rights movement to school districts all over the country um, and trying to find a funder who would be interested in doing that um, is something that I really believe in that could be possible. So be, think about how you can be involved in advocacy, but the first primary thing is putting the oxygen mask on yourself first, cultivate your well-being. Um, my sister and I, uh, every morning at 7 a.m., she lives in the Bay Area, we get together and we pray. So we are, we're on Zoom. And we pray every morning. We've been doing this now. Um, it, it started during COVID and it started for a number of reasons. But, you know, it's so interesting that we do this and we both love it. And it's a way that I start my day with gratitudes and prayer. Um, I really encourage you to think about doing something like that. That's a regular practice of cultivating your well-being. And I try to notice inside my body when I'm feeling that sense of well-being, because we know, right, with um, Phil, that when you pay attention to your sensations of well-being, they're like the flowers that grow in your garden. Mm -hmm. They grow inside of you, in your heart, in your mind, and in your nature, because mm -hmm. you do become more compassionate. Mm -hmm. It's the way we're designed. And then that compassion flows out to others. Yeah. and expands. So. Wow. So good. 
as always, I could talk to you. You said you you could be my mom. Oh, I could, I, Phil. I, I, I would definitely, I, I definitely adopt you in a minute. <laughs> and <laughs> in I, a I hot sit, minute. I sit at, I love to sit at the feet of wisdom. Ask my grand, if my grandparents were here, they'd tell you. I love sitting at their feet and just listening to them tell the stories of life and learning from them. Last thing I want you to share is how can we, how can people get in, follow you, get in touch with you, uh, social media, what have you? You, well, you share so that. Well, so first of all, we, you know, the Trauma Resource Institute.com is the nonprofit that I co-founded. Mm -hmm. um, it um, is a wonderful organization where you can learn more about the community resiliency model and the trauma resiliency model. But I also have a podcast that Phil was on. He was one of my first guests when I was starting, um, is on Voice America. It's called Resiliency Within, and I have interviewed some wonderful souls, including Phil, um, that have shared their stories of well-being, resiliency, how they're moving through the world, trying to create a better world. So please listen. We have always, I think I've, I have some really interesting colleagues and friends and new people that I'm meeting so that you can, um, you can listen, Resiliency Within. Awesome. Amazing. Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. Thank you so much, Elaine, for your time, for your wisdom, your heart, your compassion. Um, it's needed. And, you know, I value it. And I trust you, my Phil. listeners will as well. Thank you so much, Phil. Thank you. You're welcome. I hope this episode was enlightening and encouraging for you. Thank you once again for listening and parking with me at the Intersections.